0: Listening
1: to the
0: New Roots Community Radio Hour. Welcome to the New Roots Community Radio Hour podcast. We're uh, currently chilling out on a beautiful deck in uh, the High Rockies of Colorado. You might be able to hear the uh, the stream that's roaring behind us. And today I've got uh, our our newest executive director, actually our first executive director for New Roots, CEO. So. That's exciting news. So, Story we've got Laney here joining us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, uh Lani, uh I guess well, let's let's start with some uh context on on that side. How long have you been uh, the executive director now for New Roots?
1: Oh, I forget. I guess it's 1 year. Uh coming up elections on? Elections are coming up here in July. July? All right. So that would probably be 1 year in July. Uh what was your role before executive director? I was the, what was I, secretary, I believe. No, uh, yeah, secretary, because I was in charge of the uh, agendas and board meeting uh, arrangements. I think you had one other role before
0: that, because there were, what, 2 we're on our third year now, so you had two years of being on the board before you were executive director.
1: Cause it, well, because I definitely was not uh, the treasurer yet uh, at any point, so... I don't think I was the president either, though. So I think it was just I'm pretty sure I was the secretary. Two years for, running? Probably. I was like, Because there's the 1920
0: year and then the 20 or then Yeah. So there's the 1819 year and then the 1920
1: year. And then we're just we just did the 2021. Yeah. Uh, OK. Well, uh, yeah, I think it was the secretary both times. Either way,
0: so you've been on the board for two years and now executive director for a year. You've also been around since the uh, the founding of uh, New Roots as a nonprofit. You're also there for the early days when uh, we were formerly Bear Roots and we were a
1: project, and uh, yeah, I was there for Mountain Harvest Coalition um, back when that was kind of being fronted by uh, Megan and Emma. So well, you're going Laura. on, what, five, six years now? Yeah, like, I think at least six. Dang. Like, me and Laura and Nicole, uh, we all met each other roughly around the same time, like, and I think each of us was kind of, like, doing our own little thing, like, through new uh, through Salvation Army and stuff. So we all were kind of familiar with Mountain Harvest to a degree, and then we were the ones that, like, kind of stepped aside and started doing Bare Roots, and you were already on board at that point, I think. And then, yeah, then we started doing New Roots, I think. But anyway, yeah. uh, So, like, I got to, those were all just different little groups of that kind of made up, were made up of mostly the same people. (laughs) The
0: the many starting (laughs) iterations of of who we are now.
1: Yeah, just a bunch of friends who, like, were like, I really like food justice, and I really want to make sure that, like, I think, like, each of us all had the same mindset being that, it makes no sense that we could have people in our country and around the world that don't have food security. Like, it doesn't make sense that we have the amount of technology, the, like this, this amount of power as a country. And yet we still have people that are like, oh, I'm hungry today or like they eat stuff that's not really like hardly barely qualifies as food. That's, I think that we all shared that to a degree, and that was, so that's where we all kind of started off with uh, just seeing, you know, food justice as uh, kind of a uniting cause. And then I can't remember what was our mission statement for Mountain Harvest, like, that was more of a policy-driven group, I think, and this is much, then we just started with Bare Roots, we were like, well, we want to do something that's more food-growing driven, I believe. And, and more local and more localized yeah because at the time we were doing stuff with salvation army and that was more uh, nationalized and that was had a lot more overhead situation and that you know we just didn't really have any control over the stuff that we wanted to do so it was just like eh, it's easier for us to do the things we want to do if we just make our own group and that,
0: that autonomy definitely goes a long ways and
1: it, co- and it costs a lot too though because you know they it's not like it's not like we were just, you know, getting nothing out of working with Salvation Army. Like, they had all this, they have all the great resources, and they're still doing great things, so that's really cool. Um, but yeah, So, yeah, I, we had to kind of start from the ground up again, and uh, just be like, yeah, we want to just, you know, we don't need our own land, is what we thought, and then we still don't, you know, we still kind of don't have our own land. It's just fine. Like, we just do we, things. Remote. We
0: don't, but however, we uh, we keep falling into opportunities of managing land up here yeah
1: exactly like people approach us which is very nice like that's that's good to know and i mean it takes it took years of you know putting the message out there that hey we we care about the land out here we care about how it's being used we care about putting it to good use for local food production but then Uh, also like carbon sequestration and just sustainability and conservation, even like those are things we're, I think, a little bit interested in. But anyway, yeah, then we kind of went with new roots and the focus was pared down to education, outreach and partnership. And that's where we were able to kind of like hone in our things because as a nonprofit organization, we decided to become a nonprofit, like using education as one of your mission statement goals is like imperative to getting yourself, um, you know, availability for a lot of support and grants and things like that.
0: Well, I think it was, uh, looking back, it seemed like a a great learning spot for us Mm -hmm. because, you know, when I first joined you guys, when it was bare roots, the, the mission statement was it allowed for so much. It was always, I remember like yeah. the the first few summits, like it was always so hard trying to decide what it was going to be focused around because there's so much possibility in what the mission statement was and what the I guess the founding beliefs were at that point in time.
1: <laughs> I remember, yeah, actually that that reminds me of one of our biggest issues back then was like, what does our group do again? Like it was just basically the beginning of every meeting. Like, we were just like, What do we do again? Like why like what exactly is the goal? And I learned like Megan made the point too. He was like, "Well, we should have our mission statement be the opening to every meeting, so that people don't have this question." (laughs) And that's so that's what we do like now, and we have that in our. So our mission is like right there every time we have a meeting, so that that question never arises. Like, wait, what? What is the ultimate goal? Like, it kind of keeps the the ship steered in one direction.
0: Yeah. Uh, Now you've been with the with series of organizations for six years but how long have you been in the Eagle River Valley
1: I lived I moved out here in 2013 in December December 10th 2013 so you're coming up on eight years now yes yeah so I finished seven whole years out here Whew. so uh,
0: I guess on, on the personal side of things you know what's what's your personal life up here what do you do for work oh. what keeps you going
1: I do everything for work. <laughs> I do everything. I uh, started off, like when I first moved here, I started working for the ski resort in Vail. I moved over in Eagle. And then I picked up summer work doing like uh, kitchen stuff. I even, like I did cooking for Colorado Cheese Steak Company back then when that was a thing. Huh. Uh, that was, yeah, it was a very small thing. Then I you know washed dishes, then did landscaping stuff in the summers, and then so now uh, I just kind of kept doing that until now I work for the ski valet for Vail in the winter. And then in the summer, I really do a lot of New Roots work, but then I also work for this company, The Ground Up, which is run by Sean, who we also have uh, another podcast interview about. She's on our board for New Roots too. And so uh, I work for The Ground Up as a soil health specialist. And uh, what I do most typically is I make uh, I make this soil amendment called compost tea, which I think we probably, hopefully we've already done a compo- uh, an episode on this, but we could I'm actually. I'm not sure we have yet. I know, said, I know
0: Sean's talked about it when she's been on the radio with us, right. but I don't think it's made it to an actual podcast. See, now that I think yet. of
1: it, we totally could talk about this for just an hour. because like <laughs> uh, Anyway, I'm taking classes on it. It's a liquid soil amendment that I make. And then I go uh, put that onto a dispenser on a truck. Then I go over to different properties and dispense it with uh, foliar applications through a spray gun or through root feeding with a probe, um, or I do foliar, like drenches, soil drenches, I do pasture feedings, lawn treatments, all that good kind of stuff. And it's uh, completely organic, non, uh, no fertilizer, no chemicals, so you don't need any kind of uh, certifications or anything to be applying it because it's basically just dirt and water, but it's actually more than that because it's actually all these bacteria and fungi and uh protozoa nematodes hopefully to like really boost the health of your soil and so that's that's what i really love to do with my that's what i'm proud to do most. i guess that brings
0: up a big question then because you you do know a lot actually you know other than sean on the board i feel like you are the most knowledgeable in terms of all of our garden work and getting things set up um how is it that you know so much around growing
1: and gardens and I so that actually I've only started studying this stuff for the last uh like five six years like we were just quoting like like as long as I've been with uh mountain harvests and everything is as long as I've even been gardening because I didn't like I think maybe I started trying to grow some stuff like some I think I maybe tried growing weed in my apartment back you know this is I was in East Vale and this was totally legal so it's not like this isn't any like you know <laughs> seedy stuff yet but uh I was like oh let me try like save some money doing this but then uh I just was really interested in permaculture and like sustainable ag and things like that so I was thinking okay how do I get involved in this uh, and I, I mentioned that to my roommate at the time, Steve Walker. He w- works over at Loaded Joe's. He worked at Loaded Joe's at the time. He, uh, he was like, hey, you should talk to my friend. Uh, she used to work here at Loaded Joe's. Her name's Sean Bruckman. Should go talk to her about this. And I was like, okay, cool. So I like go. I send her an email, and uh, she's like, yeah, like come meet me over here at this Avon Community Garden uh, at, at the Salvation Army. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I go over there and I meet her and Megan Lovelace at the same time. Uh, and they're just like, and my whole thing was just like, Hey, I just want to know about gardening. I'm like really interested. I have a lot of like, I had the whole summer is the beginning of the summer and I had a lot of free time because I was on unemployment that summer. So I was just like, yeah, like, let me just, you know, do f- free work, please. And yeah, they were like, that's great. Uh, and then they told me about the permaculture design course over in Basalt and so they helped sponsor me there, like the Salvation Army actually uh, sponsored that. So um, Sue, Roland Brown, and uh, Trish, like they, uh, they all really uh, supported that whole thing for me. So that was really cool. And then they That's also awesome. supported the, so once I finished that, it was like a two-week, three-week intensive. So I got a permaculture design certification with that. And I had almost no background with gardening at all at that time. Like I just spent the, like a couple weeks gardening at the community garden there and mm. kind of helping manage that place. But so I was just like really thrown in, like just like just thrown into the fold with it, like right away with uh, Sean and Megan were just like, oh cool, like you need stuff to do. We got tons of work for you to do, like here. And like Megan right away, like, like the first thing I remember but she brought me inside and sat me down and was just like, okay, like we can only offer you like this much money and like this and this and this and da 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 da. But we need, we need double, like she's laying out all the work and stuff. And I was just like, well, uh, I'm on unemployment. So like, can I just like not get paid? And she was like, Oh, that's even better. <laughs> so it was just all volunteer work. Uh, and that all worked out just nicely. It was, it was anyway, it was all real cool. Um, to work with them. And then I finished the permaculture design course. then I, they ran me right into the, um, Colorado master gardener course too. That's, Hmm. uh, right here in Eagle County. So I did took that, uh, led by, uh, Jeff. Um, Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name. It doesn't, I'll It's going to come to me later. But anyway, that back when our, uh, extension agent was, um, we had Jeff, Oh, what's his freaking name? I'm maybe, maybe it's not even. Uh, I'm messing it up. Doesn't matter. He's a great guy. Got the Master Gardener cert, and that's how I know a good portion of the stuff that I know. And then after that, so I've just been gardening for like the last six, five, six years, and uh, going to like all these different farmer horticulture like uh, exhibitions, uh, union meetings, uh, expos, all that good stuff. So um yeah that's so i try to keep my uh feet wet with the knowledge the new stuff that's coming out i'm taking currently taking this course by dr elaine ingham who is the woman who wrote the book on soil biology for the usda um they have a soil biology primer on their website and you can read it and she wrote virtually she wrote almost every chapter of it save for one um, and she's the one who came up with the concept of the soil food, bi- uh, soil food web. So this concept of, you know, uh, organic matter passing from lower trophic levels to higher trophic levels throughout the soil is, uh, specifically, specifically, uh, born from her mind. And it's really cool. So anyway, she has a course that she provides through her own private, uh, institute. I don't know if it's, yeah, so it's, I don't. She. I don't think she calls it an institute. It's just the soil food web uh, hmm. dot com. You can go check her stuff out, and she offers the class, and it is super, super in depth, super comprehensive, very accessible to anybody, even if you don't have a background in science, if you don't have any knowledge. Speaking of it. which,
0: what what would be your quick explanation of what the trophic levels are? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I I lose myself, and <laughs> I just start saying things. Uh, trophic levels meaning like it's like imagine like tiers or like just levels like you know as they progress up. Uh, trophic levels meaning the different higher uh, like the lowest trophic level would be say your you would imagine a food pyramid or a me, food food chain where a grass is being fed upon by rabbit, for instance, and that. So that lower trophic level would be with the rabbit. And then a higher trophic level would be the next thing that comes and consumes the rabbit. Okay. Which would be like a snake. And then the thing, at so then that's, so now you've listed possibly three trophic levels if you want to include the grass as like the lowest trophic level. This first one after that is the rabbit. The second one after that is the uh, snake. And then the third trophic level after that, you'd consider like a hawk would come yeah. through and eat the snake. And then anything else that comes through and eats the snake later or the hawk you know is a further up trophic level and these things exist in the same way in the soil so we have Mm -hmm. just like plant material is available for things that live above the soil like rabbits and other mammals and things we also have things that live in the soil like different little bugs worms and other little even tinier things you can't see with your eye like bacteria fungi and those guys they feed off of dead plant material or even living. And they're the ones who do the first de- decomposing. They're the c- primary uh, primary consumers, primary decomposers, okay. I believe. And uh, so then they are, you know, on a new trophic level beyond the the organic dead matter and all that. And then the next higher level would be things that hunt them, which would be protozoa, nematodes, worms, um, some super small insects and arthropods and things like that. So there's really yeah, there's just like a whole. It's a jungle in the soil, and it's like, yeah, it's you wouldn't want to be in it. I don't think. <laughs> it's, if it's healthy, it's it's just active. There's things just hunting around in there. It's it's, it's a yeah, it's wild.
0: <laughs> and you were saying that like you you just started a course here in the last. It was what last fall you started taking the course on soil.
1: Yeah, it's, it took me a long time to just finish the foundation courses, and then now I'm on the lab portion, which I, that just started. Uh, my first course was last Thursday, um, so the lab portion uh, is much more focused on actual microsco- microscopy. I'm gonna. I have a microscope that has like four objective lenses on it that uh, go up to like uh, four hundred or four thousand x. Actually, I think I can go up to like. For forty times, yeah, I think I can go up to like four hundred x on my like easiest setting. But I can go up to maybe even a thousand x if I use like some. I have to use some like fluid to get the the, oh, yeah. the lens down there without it like pressing upon the objective lens. So anyway, yeah. No. Uh I'm using a really really cool microscope to look at bugs like <laughs> all, her, all of Lanny's friends
0: get to hear about his new microscope. Yeah,
1: and I got a I got a new desk cord and everything, so it's really cool. So I'm I got a really cool microscope and it comes with a digital camera. Uh well, it doesn't come with it, I had to get one. And the point of that is because I have a mentor from uh she's from Costa Rica actually, who I meet with Thursdays in the morning to just uh we go over all the different pieces and things like that and do soil sampling and everything. And I can show her with the digital camera what I'm looking at. And uh, so it's, yeah, it's, we're in the future. Feel so,
0: feel like we're going to have to start having a blog series with what Lainey finds in the soil.
1: I, I'm going to definitely t- yeah, take pictures and send them to people like, for sure <laughs> and just be like, check this thing out I found. It's hunting, it's killing things. Well, it's Lainey, Lainey's
0: going to change from the world of sending memes to, to sending what he's found in the soil to everyone.
1: I'll just make memes about stuff. Like... <laughs> that
0: sounds about right. Now, what's your uh, future goal and hope with, with doing these classes and, and all this education you learned? What are you wanting to do with it?
1: Um, well, so with the, the first thing I want to do with the soil uh, health class and all that is I want to start doing my own soil lab testing. I want to charge, I want to take samples of different people's uh, land. Go th- run it through the microscope, find out how healthy, unhealthy it is. Then I can tell them what it, what it is, how healthy it is, charge them for the privilege. And I can go ahead and make my own compost tea that is brewed specifically to meet the needs of that soil. Um, I already make the compost tea right now. And then one of the things that's like in person, you know, it's just a little scary about with a lot of people is you don't. How do you know when you have a good product? It's mm. like, well this is how you know you have to go throw it underneath a microscope and you have to look at it yeah unless you know how to do that from like the real professionals you know you never really know when you're really dialing it in so that's so that's what i'm excited about with the class and then i'm looking to be able to dial in uh whatever brews we make bring those to people's you know land gardens wherever they have trees and make sure that it like whatever I inject or apply is going to be 100% primo, exactly what that tree (laughs) wants, exactly what that plant wants. And I don't think, you know, there's just no beating that. I don't think, I'm not sure it'll be a while before they figure out a better way to treat trees than that.
0: I guess, you know, my, my next question out of that is, you know, for, for all of our listeners out there who uh, don't have the, the education and background of Lanny, uh, you know, what would you say is the importance of this approach versus say your store-bought bag of lawn treatment yeah people miracle grow get pushed on them yeah
1: um well the difference is that this is sustainable this is actually working with nature as opposed to against it you can't you can't count on chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides to actually be there for you to work and do the job. And in fact, they don't do the job. So whenever you do use them, you find yourself in a feedback loop where you end up like you apply a little bit of this fertilizer and then it turns out next year, oh, I need more fertilizer again, huh? And the next year, oh, I need more fertilizer still. Well, I guess next, along those what, lines, what, what how would you uh,
0: explain better the the idea of fertilizers working against nature?
1: Well, so this is a perfect I love, I like to describe it like this. so we you can look around here, no one listening can. but you can see there's like a giant spruce tree that's taller than the house here and there's like we're just surrounded by old growth trees. No one ever fertilized these trees. Like, why is it that they're growing? Why are they so tall? How could that be that they're so tall and yet no one ever fertilized their trees? And yet we're over here fighting with nature to figure out how we can actually get things to grow the way we want them to grow. Well, there's these natural processes that already have been happening for billions of years, as long as the planet's been around, that allow trees to synthesize and accumulate the resources and the nutrients that they need and when we disrupt that by cold uh tilling the soil by taking away native plants by introducing foreign plants we end up disrupting the natural food system that actually happens under beneath our feet this whole thing that's been all those bacteria nematodes fungi all that you were talking about earlier yes like those guys they live beneath our feet. They've been there for billions of years. So like, they, you, in a way, they're still ancient entities still. Um, their offspring are still here. They do all the real hard work for you. They are the ones that make the nutrients and things in your soil available for you. There is no soil anywhere that doesn't have the right actual chemical composition to feed your soil, to or you feed your plants to some degree the stuff that we test for when we do soil testing is we test for nitrogen in certain forms because it's available in multiple forms. We test mm. for all these different nutrients in the, in a specific form because they're actually plants available soluble plant available at, uh, in certain chemical forms, but in nature they exist in all sorts of different chemical forms. So how do the, so how is it that we have one form of nitrogen that's in the atmosphere then it is finds itself in the roots of our plants. How does that happen? That process mm. isn't something that we have to go do man-made. That doesn't have to be a man-made process, which we did end up harnessing and doing during the Green Revolution. But Earth already figured out a way to do that. Nature already figured out a way to do that already. And so we just need to figure out how to work with that as opposed mm. to against it. Um, so that's just the long story short. The reason why we need to do that, though, is because... The stuff that we do is just certainly not sustainable. Like the actually extracting nutrients from the air and the atmosphere, and then ter- putting them into a chemical form and all that—it takes energy, it takes time, it takes work that we could that could be better spent in any other way. When we already have ways of harnessing that stuff through photosynthesis. Anyway, we have uh, nitrogen-fixing plants. We have all sorts of other elements that I mean. There's honestly. In all fertilizers, even chemical fertilizers, there's hardly anything involved in those that regular compost doesn't have. Yeah. Uh, like, compost itself is loaded with almost every nutrient you need, too. Um, but the matter of the matter is just where is it in a plant-available form, and why isn't it always in a plant-available form? The way it gets into a plant-available form is with those little guys. The bacteria, the protozoa, the nematodes, the fungi, they... Do this thing called nutrient cycling. So they actually, the protozoa, the, sorry, bacteria and fungi—they're your main decomposers. They have the enzymes to break down all the different stuff in the world that, like, the simple and the complex carbon structures that exist all throughout every bit of organic matter in the world. They can break it down, and then when they break it down, they eat up all this different nitrogen. Their, their bodies are composed of nitrogen and carbon themselves. Hmm. Then bigger things like they can only have like so much nitrogen in their body, so they poop that back out anyway. Then bigger higher trophic level organisms like nematodes come through and they're like, Oh, like I'm gonna go ahead and eat some of these fungi and some of these bacteria, this would be great source of food. They don't need quite as much nitrogen anyway. actually mm-hmm. the more the most nitrogen dense organisms are bacteria. Okay. So then like, that that goes down as you go higher up the trophic levels. And so as higher trophic level organisms eat them they poop out the excess nitrogen, and that nitrogen is now primo plant food. And that's what you—that's what actually is supposed to be happening in your happy soil. You got your bacteria in there; they break down all the plant material that needs to be broken down. You just chop and drop stuff. You—you know—you mow your lawn. You leave your you know, like glass, grass clippings on the soil. Where do you think they go? That's food for the soil. That's food for their microbes. Those guys are the, coming in and they're breaking it down. They're eating it then something else comes in and eats those bacteria. And whenever they eat out them, they have too much nitrogen in them. So they're like, well, I don't need this. They poop out that excess nitrogen and it's great food for the roots of your plants. And so that's where the actual natural like nitrogen process goes around. And this happens through all the other different elements as well. Like all the other different chemicals, like zinc, iron, copper, phosphorus, potassium, all that good stuff. They all go through these similar processes.
0: I feel like this is a a good point to bring in this question because you keep using the word soil. Um, and, and I know some people know there's a difference, but I know not everyone does. Uh, and the look on your face right now says, you know where I'm going with this, but, um, let's talk about the, the difference between soil and dirt. So dirt and
1: soil, uh, so dirt is made up of sand, silt, and clay. uh, you could also say it's composed of oxygen and sometimes water, maybe depending on, you know. But that's it. It's, it's dead. There's nothing else inside dirt. Dirt is just, chem- it's just a textural thing. There's just nothing else to it. It's inert, dead. Soil is all of those things and organic matter and living organisms. So the difference between dirt and soil is life there's actual life in soil there's not life in dirt and so when you say the word dirt it is actually kind of like a dirty word if you're referring to (laughs) soil and you call it dirt it's almost offensive because (laughs) it's because it's actually a living thing if you now there is dirt in the world and that stuff does exist and you can convert soil into dirt by killing it but you can also so kind of convert... like we were talking
0: about before with using the fertilizers, y- yes. killing off the the organisms
1: in there. And so we, I didn't even really yeah go into the fact that when you use like uh, when you use hyper concentrated forms of fertilizers and you just throw that right onto your plant, what what is going to be able to eat that like super hyper like con- uh, what is the word hyper the granules of dense yes salt particles that have like uh you know potassium nitrogen whatever whatever your uh drug of choice and it has it on and you can put it out there but it's gonna basically nuke all the stuff that's not prepared for that huge like chemical imbalance that's gonna be a result of that and if you know and if you know as good as anybody who does the science on this 80 percent of what you apply chemically doesn't even stay on your land just washes right off the next time so like you're not even really getting like the, like the ROI it doesn't even <laughs> yeah. feel too good. Like you're just wasting 80% of your product. So then that goes right into the Gore Creek or whatever Creek you oh. live next to. And that just kills the fish and like messes up the biome there. And it just doesn't, you know, it's not doing anybody any favors. It well, just I mean, makes... technically even
0: where we live on, on really good wet years, you know, what's, what's running off here is still making it to the Gulf
1: coast. Oh Yeah exactly and that's why we have these like toxic algae blooms and dead zones in the gulf coast of texas and the west coast and everything that's because of nitrogen buildup coming from not just like big ag places which you know they're not to say they're they're not uh culpable in a way but it comes from people's lawns too like it comes from like just regular old people thinking that roundup and miracle grow and whatever other chemical of the day chemical of the month is appropriate to be used on your plants and it's just like man, no like that you just do less like it's what's, what's that thing. idea
0: of like just because it's on the shelf doesn't mean that it's safe
1: and that's the other thing is honestly i i yeah i hate to see what products line the shelves of like the i think the reason why these products are so like uh prominently sold like roundup and everything is because it's easy as heck to sell them and it's easy as heck to use them if like if, even if you don't know what you're doing, you can just go out there and you can go kill the heck out of your lawn. You can go, Oh, like I have dandelions better go hit them with a thing oh, that kills them. Well, guess what? That's just job security for the guys who make the roundup because you're going to have dandelions coming back. Oh and yes. And you're going to go buy roundup again. If you're, if you're, you know, fooled into buying it again. And I will
0: say you'll, you'll probably have some green ga- grass for a little while.
1: I mean, sort of. Yeah. Sort of. It, not it, it doesn't necessarily help that, uh, yeah, it I mean, is. I will say
0: like when when I owned a home back in Nebraska, I, I was originally like, you know, growing up in the Midwest. Uh, that was very much the mindset was, you know, you always had your spring feeding of the the fertilizer mm. and you had to keep doing it. Um, but when I bought a home uh, back in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, we had to have the retaining wall done. So we told them to tear out everything in front. We replanted it with uh, native grasses to Nebraska. And it was amazing because I was watering sometimes once a month had green grass almost all year long other than say like January, maybe February, but it was so much easier to take care of, looked better. Mm-hmm. Uh, weeds
1: were not a thing in it. It's, that's uh, and that's the other thing. A uh, big part of it is cultural. Um, what you call the weed is cultural. What you, what you say looks good is cultural. What you say, you know, when you say plant, you know, native grasses, well, the first thing I want to, the first thing I think it's important to cover when people are wondering like, well, why is this plant not growing here? Well, it's like, is it the right plant in the right place? Is it a native? Is yeah. it something that wants to be here? Or, or did you bring in like, did you bring in like uh like St. Like yeah, Augustine grass or something? That's like, well, does this, does that naturally grow here typically? So okay, then if it's not something that's typically growing here, that means you're going to be competing with everything else in your area that already wants to grow there, and mm. that that includes the things that you're going to call weeds, which are like dandelions or thistles, or uh, what is we have uh, Jacob's ladder, we have mm. like all sorts of crazy stuff. Like thistles out here are actually noxious weeds because yes. they actually that's just a that's just a definition that we come up with. Uh, from the state, I believe, but
0: well, there is—I believe there is one one native thistle to up here. I think it's the musk thistle. Oh, I, I don't know about that. And then there are like two or three other types that are that are noxious. Maybe.
1: I just do—I do know that like most thistles, I think they come mostly from uh, from overseas. Like yeah, we brought them over, and that's unfortunate. Uh So it would so. so unfortunately yeah we do have uh weeds that do fit the like uh, a weed is by definition a plant out of place um but (laughs) a noxious weed is something that's just like so overwhelmingly like prolific like thistle or white top uh that it's just it's like mandated by law that you must get rid of it if you see it you you have to get rid of that plant and it actually makes total sense to me and everybody else who's like big on like uh i've had it explained to me during the master gardener course that, uh, there is a, uh, it's a wildfire that very slowly spreads across the United States. And that's, it's always happening. And it's just, it's, it's like a wildfire of its own is the way yeah. it, because what these uh, noxious weeds do is they come in and they compete so heavily with the plants that are already natively adapted to these areas that they actually outcompete them. And then they make it harder for them to keep, you know, keep the, uh, a hold of the land that they're living in already. And whatever and you the ecosystem. Exactly. You, you lose diversity with that. And then, I mean, at, to a certain point where you're like, okay, I guess now we kind of need the weeds to be here because it's better to have something with roots in the ground than nothing, but it's better for the health of the ecosystem that to have the plant that had been here much longer because that plant is obviously feeding the things that have lived here. Especially really, all those fauna that are that it's, are developed to feed off of the specific exactly. biomes. Like humming, like all the different like birds, bees, f- uh, bugs that all ha- are counting on these different species to be here every year. If they get outcompeted by a noxious weed, then they are out of a food source because it's very less likely that they're going to be able to consume the thistle and then again that gives the thistle boon for being like oh great like i have nothing to eat me i'm not even less competition yeah and so it's you know this this is why this is where we come in as stewards this is where uh human beings need to we have to accept the role not as like controller or like uh Mm. you know dominant uh dominant creature of the earth but more as steward to the land not uh not owner of the land not yeah. controller but steward and that means we need to help the land do what it wants to do and we need to like kind of like push back on the effects of ourselves <laughs> that you know so when we see like thistles and things like that come over that's a result of our history that's yes. not a result of natural like you know uh progression of the seeds getting they didn't get across the atlantic <laughs> ocean you yeah, know uh, that does make me help. think of uh, the,
0: the movement here in the last couple of years for with the bees of uh, letting letting your yard go to dandelions to get that early feeding in. Yeah,
1: see, that's actually not a, yeah, that.
0: Now, have you seen, great... so uh, I say about 30 miles down the road from where we're at currently is a town called Gypsum, Colorado. I don't know if you've seen out on the the south side of town there. There's a couple of ranches out by uh, Cottonwood Pass Road and the farmers out there don't treat for the dandelions and i was driving through there a couple of weeks ago and it's amazing to me now seeing that and and wondering how we call that a weed because when it's not by itself in a manicured yard when it is a field of dandelions
1: it's actually a pretty sight i mean again yeah that's a cultural thing because i would i totally agree it looked i'd say it looks beautiful even in a in a regular old garden, uh, I mean, nice. honestly, if you if you talk to a child about <laughs> like uh, what yards look pretty and which don't, they could they probably have a completely different opinion than you. Um, oh yeah, and they because you have to teach them what they think. you have to teach them that no no that dandelion's not supposed to be growing here in this yard. I mean, why, how would you know otherwise? Because, I mean, as far as I remember, like, I remember dandelions being a thing, and I never once thought, like, well, that wasn't supposed to be there. Like, it was just, you had to retroactively teach me that.
0: Actually, you know, you're um, saying that. I remember when my my parents taught me to mow our yard, and I, I remember kind of wanting to keep those things, because they were, like, nice yellow flowers in the right? yard, and, and I was always some, told to, like, destroy them.
1: They actually add some color. Like, there's <laughs> yeah. actually some yellow in the yard instead of some green and some boringness like you know turf's great for like playing on and playing soccer and football <laughs> and baseball on that's kind of about it i think like you, yeah. if you want to go do stuff in recreation that's great it's nice to have something nice to walk on but there's nothing wrong with clover and dandelions Ooh. and for walking on like you, you know it's nice to have things that are you know soft to walk on and those aren't so bad but i when people are used to just seeing things like just look like one crop just like one clean slate of a, of a patch of, uh, area of, uh, land that only has one variety of soil, one to Kentucky bluegrass, one one second Augustine grass, and only the one, two, three trees that you planted there yeah. just to be there. That's not how nature works. And yeah. so that's, you have to be, if you're having yourself a hard time understanding why the things you're doing aren't working, You gotta at least admit that you're working against nature. Like that's that's the reason to start. Like, does the plant you want to grow there? Does it want to grow there? Is it the right plant in the right place? Uh, Is it competing with other things? Do you just want to have one thing growing there and nothing else? Does well if as you see from a lot of people out here, they like to transplant aspens into their yards (laughs) and if you know about aspens they grow in groves underground as one big entity so they grow is like you see one aspen grove that's all usually one giant organism because they're all connected together underground and if you try to transplant one of those guys into your yard just because of the aesthetic and you think it looks neat, that's, you know, don't be surprised when that tree is going to get, it's going to succumb to aphids or a cytospora or like mm. all these other different diseases that people are constantly having to deal with out here. And they're calling tree specialists in year after year yeah. to be like, hey, what's wrong with my aspen? How come it doesn't look so good? It's like, well, was it? transplanted here like uh yeah and it's like well okay like you're gonna be calling me every year or like every couple of years because this is just what it's just not natural you're fighting against the natural tendency for the plant itself
0: you know the the way you're describing this here you know for for some of our viewers out there who may not be as uh well versed into nature as you know a lot of people in in our friend group are um the way you're describing this i keep thinking of like could you imagine a town that only had one type of business in it? So let's say you had a Denver. Oh, and they, well, they
1: call them ghost towns now. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> you just, you know, like if Denver. And all you towns. had was <laughs> manufacturing
0: of bicycles. Yeah. Like nobody in their right mind would think that that would be a good model and that it would work. But we have a completely different view of how we observe our
1: yard. Right. Yeah, like we, the idea... And, now I don't know how true this is, but I it does it does sound neat like it's just uh, narratively it sounds cool, but it's like a, it's not a cool story. Anyway, uh, the idea being that we have lawns because they come from an old um, uh, royalty like uh, kind of culture where lords and counts and stuff would have their land and they would have their castles or whatever piece you know that, that would be surrounded by you know either just clean landscape or wheat or like their farms and things like that and so the idea was that the closer that your farms and your farmland and your harvested land is to your uh actual castle or your house that was kind of more of a symbol of like less uh affluence and so like to be more a more affluent king or lord or count or whoever would be able to push the farmland further and further from their doors and the walls of their castle. And so it'd be like, Oh, I have all this expanse of just like nothingness all around. It's just nice and clean. And oh, look how cool it is. And I don't, I'm not doing any harvesting of this. And that's what that was meant to be. And in a way kind of makes sense, like land management wise, because they were doing less. They wouldn't necessarily, they'd probably clear cut it like crazy, yeah, but, yeah. but that's the other, another other thing. But, the idea being that, like, look at this. I just I, look at me. I don't even need to use this land to cultivate and like grow food. I don't even need to. I'm just going to flex on everybody else. <laughs> that just sounds and, like such
0: a weird idea to me and, to like sterilize everything around you as a sign of doing yeah. well.
1: And I don't know how much that that actually carried over to the United States, but like, it does sound a little bit right. It definitely does feel like a flex on everybody to be like, <laughs> look at all this. Look at this yard I've got. Like, ooh, like, and that's all you got. You're not even. And then if you actually had a neighbor who was like, check out this like garden I've got, people would really think that the yard looks nicer. Like it just doesn't make, it's just, that's a cultural thing. That's fine. Like, I mean, it is, you know, again, like it's nice to have space to play in. It's nice to have a yard to play baseball and stuff like, so I, I respect that. But at the same time, I don't think every single person on every single house on every single block needs to have a yard that expands from their front door all the way to the, to the mailbox and it, they do nothing but produce yeah. grass. Like I don't think that's necessary. Well, uh, it seems like an yeah. interesting concept to me, especially after what was it World War
0: II with the Victory Gardens, where wasn't it something like a quarter of America's food was grown in home gardens or something like that? Oh, I don't know how much the numbers are, but it's. it's I mean, it was gotta... it was a lot. Like I know it was a big. Uh,
1: it's yeah, it's significant enough. Big
0: push to to be the support for for getting us through the wars or whatever. But it's just kind of amazing to me that you know in what 80 years time we've completely reset that circle and are back to this i mean i know in a lot of the work that we do of trying to convince people to turn a part of their yard back into some sort of garden or varied eco landscape
1: it's it's a matter you know uh i just can't help but feel like uh we just have bad attitude about land and a bad attitude about our, our responsibility for it in our country. Um, things are when you have like such a laissez faire attitude about just about everything in the world and be like, well, it's not my problem. It's somebody mm-hmm. else's problem. You know, we tend to just start losing sight of just like what actually matters in our, like to, what we have to have managed to actually affect our own and other people's health, which includes the land that we live on, which includes like the type of things we allow to grow in the land we live on, which is, I mean, it sounds like that's like, I'm talking like two or three steps away from anything that might actually affect anyone who's listening. But uh, the truth is, you know, these are the things that like cause us to actually like when you do or do not have like foliage around when you do and do not have a, like a, actually healthy landscape around you you that does influence your mental your physical health when people are like in hospitals if they see trees outside a window that actually can have a direct effect on how quickly they heal according to some well, maybe doctors, bogus doctors article. I, are I now think I prescribing
0: um time in nature
1: yeah exactly yeah these these all of these little little things like they t- they add up and if you if you really keep on paying attention to each little thing and We've noticed. I think in our field, we've noticed that people are so disconnected from where their food comes from that they like they literally don't have a concept of like where does the tomato come from? And some people say the grocery store. I guess like some kids do. I that's it's just beyond me. Like how like ignorant that is. Um, but I imagine that is actually the case because people keep telling me that that's what they say. Like their kids are saying it, and, that, and when that happens. Don't be surprised when people are like messing with your food and putting stuff in your food that they don't know that you don't even know what they are. They don't even know what they are. And when your kids are like, they don't even have the words to say, like, why this is upsetting to them. <laughs> Don't be surprised, cause we've we've spent so little time even talking about why this could be important. We've spent no time at all we just kicking the can down the road. Like, why would we why would this matter? Why does it matter what's in our soil? Why does it matter what's yeah. in our seeds? Why does it matter what's in our food? Why does it matter what goes in my stomach? We just, you know, we're all caught up in yeah, if it it could be it's it's really daunting it's really tough to like actually like spend the time on like you know asking yourself where does this come from and how do i get it how do i get control of it but when you do you find i don't know you you get so much more you feel so much more control over what you're doing just by growing something if you like grow one tomato plant yeah like you're not gonna eat like just that one tomato plant a year no pro, no question but you're gonna get like so much more empowerment out of that when you actually manage the soil when you actually think about it uh talk to your kids about it and then this can actually lead to bigger change later on when people are actually talking about like hey like we need more food to bolster like the actual local food system oh well uh i i know how to grow one tomato plant i like here you go like i can yeah give the excess and that's yeah, whenever the the country was called to grow their modern victory gardens back in the day, or their, not their, uh, in the 1940s, or the 30s and 40s, 50s, to grow moder- uh, victory gardens for the war effort and for the local, you know, people took up the call and they actually did it. And it was like, by today's numbers, it's staggering, like yeah. the amount of response they got. And during COVID, there was a very similar call to action. Um, and we did have a very similar, like, Response where people were just like, okay, yeah, like we do want to like do what's right and grow food for our fellow people, for our fellow Americans, for people across the world. And anyway, as long as that's still in the cards, as long as people are still able to do that, as long as I think, you know, there's there's always hope that that'll never die. I don't think. I think we're always going to have a modern victory garden project like the CSU extension started recently. Um, and we're participating in that. So, um, anyway, I don't know. Grow food is all the the moral <laughs> of that story, but uh, yeah, I think it's a matter of culture more than anything. We need to like teach our children. We need to teach our adults even yeah. to, that like, hey, like the way that we grew up and learned to do things maybe wasn't the like end all be all. Like, let's start adopting new. Concepts. And it wasn't necessarily right yeah I mean you know, we
0: we always have this you know this idea of the the greatest generations, and you know we're we're learning as we go, so it's uh you know we we're always learning and we we never get anything absolutely right and with that being said, you know with all the flaws that there are out there i think my my final question for you is if you could wave a magic wand and change something in the world, what would you change, and the second part of the question is. What do you wish the listeners would do to be a part of making that change?
1: Mm, That's a tough one. Um, I could say anything, but I'll choose. uh, I can just choose something off the top of my head. Uh, I'd say at least we could say eliminate food insecurity would be an easy one based on what we've been talking about today. Uh, And to actually meet that end, we could, I'd say... Do some home, well, you can do one of many things. Grow your own food, compost the food that you don't finish eating. Find, uh, figure out about your local compost facility if you have one. If you don't have one, look into starting one or talk to somebody who's interested in starting one, figure out how you can support them. Um, Figure out what kind of land conservation there is going on in your area. Figure out how to conserve land Um, or I would say uh, do the homework on what is the local food system and see how you best fit into that mold. Um, so yeah, help uh, help grow food for your local community if that's what you want to do. Help advocate for local food change and law change if that's what you, if you're an advocate, if you're a lawmaker, if you're uh, more of an artist, then like put out the word for people or if you're, uh, you know, help people put the word out there in a way that's creative, you know just there's all sorts of different ways that that food movement needs to be supported and so there's just you know if you don't know how you can support it just think about what you're good at and there is something for you like if in my case i like to grow food i feel like that's something that i really enjoy to do and i feel pretty confident in doing it and if that's what you are too then that's one of the best things you can do too just go find a community garden or grow a couple plants at your house and donate the excess that you don't eat to your local food bank or wherever you are. So that's a, yeah, local food banks are also a great source for um, work to do if you don't know what to do. It's a great place to volunteer. It's also a
0: great place, from my experience, of, of learning about the food system um, and kind of learning the realities of it. I know, you know, our, our local food bank up here, the community market. Um, has blown me away on the things that I've learned from one from, you know, like what food ends up going there and what gets donated there, but also the amount of need and the, and the
1: reality that tends to go hidden in most communities. You can literally, yeah, you get, you actually see the amount of people that go through there on a daily basis. And it's pretty staggering. And then, I mean, shoot, you dr- uh, driving around all last summer throughout different counties, we'd see different food banks with lines of cars, mm-hmm. miles long, uh, just waiting to go get their piece from the food bank that's you know that's a demonstration or yeah that's a visual aid for the need right there if you ever needed one yeah uh, yeah so there's yeah food banks are always a great source if you just were interested in the cause of like fighting food insecurity and like making sure food gets to where it needs to get because I mean it's not even a matter of production it's not even a matter of like needing. we don't necessarily need more nutrients or more fertilizers or more GMO you know, we don't even talk about GMOs. That it doesn't necessarily you know we don't necessarily need more of any of the foods. We what's just need the those statistic? foods to get it's where like they 40, need. Forty forty percent of food goes to waste before it even makes yeah. it to your table or something like that. And I wouldn't you know it's it's and I I, I hear the number go up to like forty nine percent, you know, like ultimately that gets made just doesn't go anywhere to where it needs to go so like but the other 51 percent actually gets somewhere but that means that's like a massive inefficiency issue yeah and that's so that's the problem we're facing it's not like okay let's just so like basically for every two dollars you spend on creating food you're not even getting one dollar (laughs) back you're not actually getting a dollar's worth of food potentially like in in, in inefficiency words i suppose i'm simplifying that dramatically i know but uh, you could at least address the efficiency issue, addre- address the fact that the food isn't necessarily making it to yeah. where it needs to go. And, it, and even when it does get there, how long is it able to stay there? Why is it traveling so far? Yeah. Does it need to travel so far? There, we have all sorts of different logistical issues that, like, and feeding the world has been um, a national and international question forever. Like, there's been really far greater minds than ours that have been trying <laughs> to figure this out for a long time. And it's and it's not like anybody's like, yeah, I don't think anyone's out there to try to, like, stop feeding the world. But it's just that we have competing ideas. And yeah. So we just want to make sure that what we, everybody just wants everything to work, I hope. <laughs> so that We is, just want to make sure that actually the food system does work. <laughs> yeah. And it works for everybody, which exactly. is which
0: is why I love our mission statement. To provide access to healthy, sustainable food through education, outreach and partnership for everybody,
1: not just some, yeah. but for everybody. And what that means, you know, those those terms mean different things to different people, because um, for some people like, oh, like if everyone can just eat like, you know, uh, Doritos, por- porridge and yeah, if everyone can just eat porridge and mead or porridge and water every day. <laughs> Oh. That would be just fine, right? Like that counts And it's like well, actually like the more we learn about human beings and what it takes for us to be like fully sound and mind nutrition and body, aspect. you need full nutrition. yeah, you yeah. need a full spectrum of food. you need a variety of like foods in your diet. So like you know having just like one food like corn or rice, that really is great to have, like this really good calorie component to fuel your uh, your entire planet. But <laughs> it isn't quite enough. That's when we start thinking, like, okay, we gotta have more variety. Gotta have some more fresh produce. Gotta have some more fresh things that are like coming from your local produce uh, stuff that doesn't have to go so far. You know, yeah. The, the the conversation is staggering, like how you know we talk about localizing our food systems, talk about um, reducing the amount of transportation that goes into it stimulating your local economies because you have local food systems that are local foods that are being bought locally. Uh, Yeah. But you know, and then you start getting into talking to economists and stuff and like they, they can tell you why, how and why that's very complicated. (laughs) So yeah, we're, we're, we're in a, we're in over our heads, but we're trying. (laughs) Definitely, definitely
0: trying, you know, Lainey, thank you for, uh, for joining me out here on this beautiful patio, even though we are getting covered in, cotton balls, cotton balls from the trees by us. But I, I do say for, for being our first, uh, in-person podcast we've recorded in almost two years, I can't imagine uh, a more beautiful setting and basically a forest and a little wood cabin. Um, so definitely thanks for joining me I was glad, you know, I got to talk to you on this. Uh, thanks for sharing your insight and definitely be, uh, Definitely having to do a show with you on some uh, soil coming up soon
1: and get more in depth on those uh, microbes. Yeah. We could do that anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Like I could, yeah, I could, we could keep going. (laughs) Definitely.
0: Well, I want to thank you all for listening to the New Roots Community Radio Hour. We'll be uh, hopefully putting out shows more regularly here in the future. Now that we're, Moving to the other side of the COVID pandemic, if you are living in the uh, Vale Valley, the Eagle River Valley, you can check out a radio show uh, every other Thursday on 107.9 Kalamick's LP Mintern. I have that way too memorized after the last three years of running that show. Uh, But otherwise, yeah, we'll be putting out regular shows on here. You can catch it on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. This has been the New Roots Community Radio Hour.